and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We've got an exciting show today because exciting things are happening here in the United States that haven't been all that much publicity. One of them is the just passed and about to be signed into law infrastructure bill. And the reason we're talking about it is it's going to make a huge difference for travel in the United States. To help me discuss one aspect of that, I have Jim Matthews on the line. He is the CEO and president of the Rail Passengers Association. Hey, Jim, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Pauline, thank you for having me. Great to be here. So is it too hyperbolic to say it is a brand new day for Amtrak? Uh, No, it's not. This is a transformational moment for passenger rail in the United States. Even if I say that, that doesn't capture the full breadth of how different things will be once all of these programs really take root. Yeah. No, it's it's astounding. That's why it's kind of boggling my mind that nobody seems to be talking about this infrastructure bill because the changes it is going to bring and the good changes uh, we should be celebrating. So let's talk a little bit about the details first. How much money is being given to Amtrak and what are some of the projects that this money will tackle? So uh, the way this bill works, uh, I'm going to try to strip away a lot of the sort of complicated Washington insider stuff. Perfect. Um, and, but, but the way this is going to work, Amtrak is going to get a minimum, a guaranteed minimum of $4.4 billion every year for five years to upgrade physical infrastructure, equipment, uh, coaches, that sort of thing. Another $3.8 billion is potentially going to be there available each year on top of that. Huh. Um, so that that alone um, would be an extraordinary increase in Amtrak's annual funding, which is historically hovered just under $2 billion a year. So that's already an enormous amount of money. On top of that, there's another $8.8 billion a year that the U.S. Department of Transportation will distribute through competitive grant programs. We don't know where that's going to go, where in the country, but at least 45% of that is going to be distributed outside of the Northeast Corridor that a lot of people are familiar with between Boston and Washington, D.C., And at least 20% of that is earmarked for what we call the long distance network. Those are those very long trains that run between, say, Chicago and Los Angeles or Chicago and Seattle and so forth. Um, Right. So if you look at all of that together, um, we're looking at, again, depending on which things come through and which things don't, you're looking at um, as much as $66 billion to be uh, allocated over five years for rail investment in the United States and possibly as much as 101 billion over the five years. So it's an extraordinary amount of money yeah. and there's going to be so many important projects that are going to come out of it. Some well, of them are going to be visible and some of them are not. Ah, well, I think one of the most visible will be the fact that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, right now about a quarter of the stations that are in the Amtrak network are not being used, and those will be brought online, right? 
I, I think that's that's partly true. In some cases, okay. those stations are not going to be, it, they're just too far gone. Huh. Um, and so what we may have to do is just build a new station in a particular community. Huh. Um, it's going to depend on the, on the station itself. But there are certainly many, many stations that are going to get the facelift that they need to, to restore service. So it depends station by station. We're looking at as many as 160 uh, new destinations here or more, even depending on how the, the grants go. So we're going to have to go through and look station by station, platform by platform, and, and kind of see where we're at. And what does that mean for those 160 communities? Well, some of them are already uh, in Amtrak sites for, uh, for expansion. Uh, there's two kinds of expansion I think people have to remember, too. There's giving more trains every day to places that already have service maybe once a day or three times a week. Ah. And then there's brand new service in a place that hasn't had it. Hmm. Um, so those both count as expansion. Frequencies, you know, number of trains per day, that's a lot easier to add than building a brand new station. So sure. I think we're going to see some of those first. But when you look at places like, uh, you know, for example, Atlanta or Nashville or Phoenix or Las Vegas, these are places that really are Columbus, Ohio is a great example. Scranton is a great example. Hmm. There are cities and communities whose size and number of trips justify having train service and they don't have it. And so those those places will, will be very likely to see expansion and new stations and new facilities and so forth. But it means um, connectivity. It means, I would think, increased economic growth. It means tourism. It means that, that a lot of communities that don't have many uh, other ways of connecting with the rest of the United States beyond private cars will have options, right? Exactly. Um, we and, and this is true whether you're looking in rural parts of the country or in urban parts of the country. We see the same phenomenon where because you give people the ability to travel, you give people the ability to take the train so that they can go to work, they can go to school, they can travel for fun. We see economic growth everywhere we make these investments. And it usually returns anywhere from $4 for every dollar you spend to as much as 7 or $8 wow. for every dollar that you spend in the community on this kind of service. It's always an investment. It's never, it's never going to come out negative. And I'm very excited about that. Just just the ability to get more places in a greener way. I mean that that that's that's so important. So you have more communities being brought online and more types of travelers because the needs of people with disabilities are finally going to be addressed uh, by this bill, right? That's exactly right. Uh, there's money in the bill. To do two really important things. One is to get at the backlog of Americans with Disability Act uh, modifications that need to be made uh, in facilities across the country, making ramps, making wheelchair accessibility uh, a priority, uh, elevators, uh, those kinds of things. But then on top of that, just the mere addition of service in some of these places is in and of itself going to be a boon to the disabled community. A lot of people don't realize that about a quarter of Amtrak's long distance trains ridership is disabled in some way. Uh, and that's because it's very difficult or impossible to get a powered wheelchair or medical oxygen onto a bus or 
certainly mm. not onto a small regional airliner. Right. Um, and so these people have no options today if mm. they don't have that kind of service. Right. So adding service to these communities is going to open up an entire world to people who have not had those kinds of options before. And I think that's tremendous. Oh, yeah. As well, as you said at the very beginning, there's going to be new train cars and new locomotives. What will that feel like to passengers and what what differences will that make? It's going to make an enormous difference. You know, I, I testified in Congress a while back about the state of the what we call rolling stock, which is the coaches, the sleeping cars, the, the, the stuff that rolls, the stuff that we actually consider the train. Um, and I called it a rolling museum. <laughs> uh, and it's true. It, it's, it's sad, but, but it's true. Um, Amtrak has never really been given appropriate capital funding to make the kinds of investments that they need to to replace uh, those coaches and locomotives and sleeping cars and so forth on the kind of scale and regularity that they need. There have been little purchases here and there, but it's got to be sustained. You got to do it in a regular sort of pace. And Amtrak has not been able to do either of those things. This is going to really accelerate the pace of some of the uh, purchases that are already underway. Um, Amtrak has been fielding newer, greener locomotives for some time. That is going to really be secured in this bill. They have already been involved in getting some uh, refurbishments done and some new cars done on, on single level not bi-level, so single level or the sort of short single floor cars that you see very often uh, in, the, in the east, in the northeast. <clears throat> Next up is the what we call the superliners. These are bi-level cars. These have an upstairs and a downstairs, and you see them on these long-distance trains that cross the country. Those are in some cases um, as much as, as 35, 40, huh. sometimes even 40 plus years old, Wow! and they're showing it. They take excellent care of them. They do what they can, but there is a point where you just you have to start replacing this this equipment. Sure. Amtrak has already started a refurbishment program this year to spiff up the newest of those superliners that we have. Newest is a reg, is kind of a relative term, but they'll be getting new carpets, new seats, those kinds of things. But that's just a temporary sort of stopgap where Amtrak will now be in a position to uh, specify and order replacements not only for those those bi-level uh, cars that operate on these very long distance trains but on cars across the country wow. uh, and the objective is to not just replace each car but to add capacity because if you're going to add 160 destinations and you're going to add extra trains every day yeah. you're going to need more equipment right? so the fleet has to grow just to accommodate that so this bill really clears the way for a 2 billion dollar equipment acquisition, which is great, right. not only for Amtrak and for the passengers, but it's great for the country, right? I mean, right now, 125,000 Americans work in the railway supply industry across all 50 states. So this is going to create an, a, a tremendous opportunity for America's manufacturing sector. Well, you know, They're going to be I, able to build all these cars. Yeah. I, I can already hear naysayers saying, but who wants to take the train? Are there enough people who will actually take the train? I mean, was it service cut during the pandemic because trains were going out empty? The reason that service was cut during the pandemic was because Amtrak didn't know where its next appropriation was coming from. Huh. 
Um, oh. And so th- th- this was strictly about conserving cash. Uh, and and that was it's it's kind of a, a misnomer. It is true that in the Northeast Corridor, the business type trains, the Acellas and, and people like that, yeah, that those trains were doggone near empty. I'll, I'll just give you a sort of a comparative number. If you look at March of 2020, right? So that's that's kind of the the benchmark for for when the pandemic really began. Sure. In March of 2019, yeah, the Acela carried a million passengers. Right. In March of 2020, it carried 382,000 passengers. So still a lot, but yeah. It's still a lot, but much, much lower than where it was. Now let's compare that to the long distance trains. 378,000 in, in the previous March, uh, down to 194,000 uh, in the middle of the pandemic. And so what we saw was that Amtrak was cutting its seats by 50% to maintain social distancing. In other words, they would only sell oh, half a car sure, so that people could be apart. Right. Um, the long distance trains routinely operated at 50% of their prior year ridership, which hmm. tells you that if the seats had been available, they, they would have been, been full. Ah, very interesting. Yeah. And we know before the pandemic, that Amtrak's popularity was just increasing exponentially, that a lot of young people don't want to have to rely on cars, that they want to have these options, that they're very aware of climate change and they want a green method of transportation. They sure do. Um, I mean, Amtrak's ridership was setting records year after year after year um, for over a decade. Every year they would just go up and up and up. And where they were constrained and didn't have uh, you know, higher growth was because they didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the ability to carry anymore. So, you know, it, it's pretty clear when you look at the numbers that if the Amtrak service exists in a given place, it is well used. Um, right. It's a very popular myth that these trains travel empty. They don't. They're very well used. And the, the trick is we got to get enough cars, enough seats, enough sleepers, there are enough trains operating every day to get people more options to go where they want to go when they want to go. Yeah. We have a Facebook group. It's called Fromers Roamers. And mm-hmm. it, we posted our recent, I, I recently wrote a, an article about the infrastructure bill. And the biggest comment we got was, wow, does this mean high speed rail? I've been to so many, I've been to Japan. I've been to Europe. I've been to other places where they are just so much farther ahead than we are in the United States. And I can't wait for that to come here. So high speed, will that be solved by this? That will not be solved by this. Uh, and it's unfortunate. The, the, the thing with high speed rail is, first of all, we are profoundly behind the rest of the world when it comes to high speed rail. Yep. Uh, I, I, I like to say this. And I don't mean any disrespect to the countries involved, but, you know, Uzbekistan just completed a high-speed rail network in its country. Oh, my goodness. We can't do that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's the, all I can say right now is that there is no dedicated funding for high-speed rail in this bill. Um, mm-hmm. In the JOBS Act, there was money for uh, conventional rail, freight rail, and, and that sort of thing. There's $10 billion dollars as a sort of down payment or seed money for high-speed service in the reconciliation bill, which is that separate piece of legislation 
huh. that is still hung up in the Congress. Right, right. Um, and, and that's where that lives right now. We know that high-speed rail could be a game changer in itself. It can move a lot of people quickly and efficiently and, and cheaply um, once it's done. Um, but it's just, we've never really built high-speed rail in this country, so we're not good at it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's a, that's a sobering thought. Uh, we, we kind of assume that we're good at everything, but we're not. There's some very promising things happening um, in the private sector that might help us. If I look at um, in Texas, for example, there's a private group that's trying to bring together high-speed rail using the exact same technology that's used on the Japanese bullet train. They will literally bring the trains to Dallas and Houston and run them between Dallas and Houston for business travel. Wow. Um, they, are, they are so close to being able to start, and the uh, they have opposition from some landowners, and those people have taken them to the Texas Supreme Court. Huh. The Texas Supreme Court could undo that. Uh. Uh, and so, you know, high-speed rail for political reasons uh, and historical reasons remains very far away in the United States. And I think that's a, a shame because yeah. it can do so many things and make, make things so much better. Uh, and anyone who's actually ridden any of those kinds of trains, whether the Japan Shinkansen or the TGV in France or the Ave in Spain, which I've done, I've done those trains. Yeah. You, once you experience it, you realize, wow, this is, this is how this can and should be. Absolutely. Uh, and Well, anyway, even without high-speed rail, this is a game changer for Amtrak and also for the nation's roads and bridges and uh, urban transportation systems. I mean, as I said at the beginning, it's been maddening to me that people aren't jumping up and down with joy about what is about to change in the United States. Because I, I think this is going to be, this is amazing news for travelers, but also for citizens. I completely agree. I think what's going to happen is that once Americans see real changes in their lives, it, it will become real to them. Yeah. I think there's a, a, I think there's a fatigue right now in the country where, you know, people have heard these kinds of things before and, and we failed to deliver. And so I think there's a little bit of, okay, show me. Right. Uh, sure. But, yeah. But I think once that happens, people will start to see that the, the, the tremendous benefits. They will see, oh my goodness, I can take a train now. I couldn't you do that before. Yeah. Oh my goodness, this is a nice clean car and, and it doesn't rattle. And hmm. oh my goodness, I can make a reservation on my on my phone using the app and it actually works really well. Yeah. Or oh my goodness, grandma can come see see us for Thanksgiving because she can get her wheelchair under the train. Hmm. Or yeah. Oh my goodness, broadband actually works. So grandma living on the farm can do a, a video call with us. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are in that bill. Yeah. And once people see these changes in their lives, I think, I hope that they will they will celebrate what's in these packages a little more. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, so great speaking with you, Jim. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me, Pauline. guest is Craig Storty. He wrote a terrific book called The Hunt for Mount Everest. Hey, Craig, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Thanks very much, Pauline. My pleasure. Well, as I'm sure you know, it's good timing for a book with this subject because it's the 
100th anniversary of the historic climb uh, that George Mallory and Guy Bullock did up Mount Everest, becoming the first Westerners to summit it and perhaps the first human beings. But your book starts well before that climb. What inspired you to do a book on all that led up to that moment? Yes, thank you. Uh, just by the way, you said the first to summit it. They, they didn't actually summit. They, they only oh, okay. made it 26,000 feet. But yes, I was living in Nepal in the 80s and reading everything I could about Everest. And all the books start in 1921 with the first expedition that you just cited. And yet we all know, well, most of us know that Everest was measured uh, and discovered to be the world's highest mountain in 1852. So I thought, well, gee, there's 75 years here. What, what happened? And so I thought somebody should write that book. This was in 1980. And so now 41 years later, somebody has. <laughs> wow. <laughs> just thought there must be a prequel here. There must have been things going on to which the 21 uh, expedition was the climax. So let's, let's find out what happened before. So that was my inspiration. Well, I don't think most people do know that it was only measured in 1850. And one of the fascinations of the book to me was you go into the mindset that people had about mountains pre, let's say, 1700. And uh, mountains were not, what's the word? Uh, you know, I, I come at everything from a travel point of view. And so for, from my mind, mountains have always been something that travelers have been fascinated with and found beautiful, but that actually is not the case, right? Absolutely right. Yes, we think of mountains as, as either a place for recreation or a place for exploration and, and scenic beauty. But until the middle of the 1700s, people were afraid of mountains. And yeah. uh, there were rumors that there were all kinds of sort of non-human, sub-human, half-human creatures living there, that it was a dangerous place. And you you'd never went there unless you absolutely had to. And nothing, um, and and there was no way to, to avoid it. If you could avoid it, it certainly right. wasn't something you did by discretion. It was something you did because you had no choice. And when did that change, and why did that change? Well, it started to change with the Romantic movement in literature and in philosophy, where nature became something positive, something inspiring, something that could uh, could lift you up. And so suddenly mountains weren't seen as dangerous. They were seen as, as evocative, as a way to grow, and they were inspiring. And so initially it wasn't to climb that people went in. They just went into, into the Alps to, to view them from down in the valleys and be inspired by the beauty of nature, the, sort of a, trend, a transformative experience. And then eventually when the fear factor, if you will, went away, then right. people who had been climbing elsewhere at, at that time said, well, let's climb the Alps. They, they don't have to just be seen from below. Let's, let's see them from the top. Yeah, and I think it's, it's useful for, for people. You remind them in this book that the sport of climbing is actually very, very young. Uh, who were the first climbers who did it for recreation? Well, um, I guess you could say this Benedict de, de Saussure, who was a, a Swiss climber, a Swiss man. He was a scientist, actually. He was entranced uh, and enchanted by Mont Blanc, as many folks were at the time, the highest mountain in the Alps. 
and he always wanted to climb it. Uh, he was going to do experiments on the top, but he was also just transfixed by the beauty. And so that, well, I think Desaussure climbed somewhere in the late 1700s. Uh, he wasn't the first. There were two Swiss guides that actually did it the first. But And it wasn't really a sport yet. It was something that rich people could do or people with a lot of time. Um, but then, because the English were always interested in rock climbing, I'm not 100% sure why. Um, right. They they heard about the Alps, and they were actually the first who went there specifically just to climb. And I suppose you could say at that time, uh, it became a, 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 a pastime, if not yet quite a sport. Yeah. And you, you tell the, in the book, you tell the very dramatic story of the first summiting of the Matterhorn. Wow. Uh, it, it, uh, which was, it ended up being a race, right? Well, yes. The, uh, and of course, it was a British, uh, a British guy, uh, uh, Edward Wimper, uh, who, who was fi- fixated on climbing Mont Blanc. And by that time, the Italians, well, all the folks around the, the edge of uh, Mont Blanc, which is, includes Switzerland and Italy, they were all keen to climb it too. But Wimper sort of, he, 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 de- he was determined to be, to be the first. He did try to climb it a couple of times with this Italian guide. Uh, they made it a, a certain distance, but not to the top. And then when he wanted to climb it for, I think it was the fifth time, the guide said he wasn't available, but actually he was about to lead an Italian group up from the south side. And right. so Wimple went, went around, found some kind of amateurs and did the climb with them. He knew Carell, the Italian man, was climbing at the same time from the other side. And the idea was, the the, the question was who was going to get there first and Wimper knew that if he saw footsteps on the top then he hadn't made it but actually <laughs> he, he did make it he, he went over to the edge looked down the south side and there were the Italians several thousand feet below yeah and when they, when they saw him they turned around and went back yeah no and I won't I won't I don't want to spoil the whole book because but then tragedy struck uh his crew but read the book Another fascinating thing, you know, we live in a world where knowledge is available at a at, at the tap of a fingertip. You go to Google, you find out how tall Mount Everest is. But just finding out the height of mountains was an incredible undertaking and uh, a physical undertaking. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, the early map makers and surveyors figured out that Everest was the tallest mountain in the world? Yes, well, it was actually done through, I guess you'd call it trigonometry today. Uh, the English had for many years been surveying most of India, their most valuable possession from south right. to north. Uh, and eventually, of course, they ran into the Himalayas, most of which were not uh, you couldn't enter as a Westerner, either because Nepal had for, was closed to Westerners or because Tibet was. So when they got to the mountains, they couldn't, they couldn't enter them and measure them from below or from nearby. But through what is called triangulation, if you know the elevation of two points, then through something called triangulation, you can calculate the elevation of a third unknown point. And so that's the method they used, uh, working from Darjeeling in northeast uh, India, uh, right. carrying, carrying the 600-pound theodolite, which is a very sensitive uh, surveying instrument, <clears throat> carrying it up and down these, what we'd call them mountains, they probably call them hills, 
and and taking different measurements from I believe I believe in the end they they used six different um, locations and then they did an average and with a lot of computing what we would call computing it was mathematical calculation it took a couple of years actually to to compute all the measurements yeah. and then just to do all the math it took two years right <laughs> yes, exactly yes yes because wow. it was such a potentially important discovery that they they really wanted to get it right and if I may Pauline there's something that I just found out the other day that I would have loved to put in the book, but but it ah. was too late. The Andrew Waugh, who was the surveyor general at the time, the one who, who carried out this measurement, the, the actual measurement apparently came to 29,000 feet. And Waugh thought, gee, nobody's going to believe that. So he added huh. two feet. Because it's a round number. It's, it's not 29,212 or whatever. So he added two feet to the to that calculation. So he's now considered the first man to put two feet on the summit of Everest. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> That's hilarious. Actually, so, Ed, Ed Caesar did that. He's a the, the author of a book about Everest called The Moth and the Mountain. He came up with that great, great line. So I have to credit yeah. Ed. Oh, yeah. That, that's a great line. So there were also, there's so much in this book. I, I I had no idea. At one point, you talk about the fact that a lot of the surveying that was being done had to do with a scientific argument of the time. They knew that the earth was an orb, but they didn't know if it was grapefruit shaped or egg shaped. Can you explain how that played into why they were looking at the the size of mountains and other parts of the landscape? Well, what that played into, yes, there was this great controversy because obviously nobody could look at it from far enough away to, right. to, to figure it out. Um, the way it played into the Everest story is that it turned out that if they could survey a long, um, a long enough piece of the earth, which, which is to say from southern India to northern India, which I forget, I think it's something like 1,500 miles, that if they could get an accurate measurement of a long piece of the orb, then they would be able to calculate from that, well, given given this trajectory, it has to be an egg or it has to be a, a grapefruit. So uh, that's why uh, at the time, nobody had surveyed a long enough section of the earth to be able to make that judgment. And so when, when the survey of India ent uh, entered upon this multi-year survey, they eventually had enough data along enough stretch of the earth in order to say it's it's an egg or, or it's a grapefruit. I think we decided it was a more like an egg. We decided it was more well, like an egg. No, I don't know. I'm sorry, is that correct? Which one is more? No, it must actually, be a grapefruit, right? It must be grapefruit, yes. I, I don't think actually say that in the book, but it has to be grapefruit, of course, because that's circular and an egg is ovoid. So, yes. Right, right, right. <laughs> we were just we're about there. to break new ground on the Fromer Travel yes, Show. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a good way. <laughs> yeah. There also were major geopolitical forces in play in terms of the mapping of Everest and the exploration of that territory. Can you just give a little bit of, of that history? Yes. Well, basically, the, the discovery and the mapping and the expedition to Everest is part of what's called the Great Game. Briefly, the Great Game was a multi-decade contest between Russia on the one hand and Great Britain on the other for control of Central Asia. 
Britain's interest was really to protect India, the jewel in their ah. crown, an essential economic uh, part of their empire. Russian interest was to protect themselves from all these Mongols and invaders that came from the east. So they wanted to protect themselves by taking the fight into Central Asia. The British were very worried that the Russians have their eyes on India, which in fact they did. And mm. so they thought, well, uh, Tibet is between us and Russia, uh, but and the Himalayas are between us and Russia, but we don't want the Russians in Tibet. That's too close. Or in Afghanistan, which actually borders directly. And right. so there were, rum- there were rumors that the Russians were in Lhasa, the, the capital of Tibet, rumors that they were supplying weapons, and the British just couldn't stand for this. So as you know, they eventually invaded Tibet. It was called a frontier commission, but it was attended by 1,100 soldiers. And so they effectively conquered Tibet. Uh, They didn't uh, colonize it. They withdrew. But after that, they had a great deal of influence in Tibet, which eventually allowed them to get permission to look for Everest. So it's an absolutely enthralling adventure-packed, history-packed book. I think it would be a great Christmas gift. It also has a gorgeous cover. Uh, So many, many congratulations, Craig, and thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you very much, Pauline. It was my pleasure. And that's it for this week's show. As always, it's been an honor to spend this time with you and with my wonderful guests. They were really terrific this week, weren't they? They always are, but uh, this week, I think, especially so. I have some big news coming about this show. Changes are afoot. I can't give details until contracts are signed, but this show is going to be part of a a cutting-edge new platform. I'll give you more details when I can But in the meantime, I'm so grateful that you listened. And to those who are traveling, as always, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. No